No, Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to Superman. Welcome to Superman Forever Radio, the podcast devoted to Superman. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. This is episode 25, which feels like it should be an event. So this week we're going to look at the Superman stories penned by Alan Moore, since those were definitely events. And we're also taking a look at the seventh episode of Superman the Animated Series, The Way of All Flesh. And remember that Superman Forever Radio is a twice-weekly program. While I look at Superman and other media, as well as the world he inhabits and more here on Sunday. I also have a review episode that gets posted on Thursdays where we're going we're going issue by issue through all of the Superman comics published following Infinite Crisis in 2006. And Thursday, this coming Thursday brings us to July of 2007 and Action Comics number 850. On top of that, there is also the SFR Daily Planet, an almost daily mini podcast delivering the latest Superman news as it happens. And you can find all of this at supermanforever.com and, of course, the supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Speaking of the news, let's play a promo. And actually, it's the new Superman Forever radio promo that I worked up. And you can, of course, find that live. And then we'll follow that with a, a promo from another podcast and recap all of the news from the SFR Daily Planet this week. Over 70 years of history in film, television, radio, and comics. Who are you? A friend. A hero sent to Earth from a doomed planet to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. A strange visitor from another planet, Superman. This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio. A look at Superman's history in all mediums, from comics to film to merchandise, animation, and beyond. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. Join me every Sunday and Thursday for a twice-weekly exodus into the world of Superman. Sundays we explore a wide range of topics throughout the mythology, from the heights of Metropolis to the fields of Smallville and to the depths of the galaxy of Krypton. Plus the latest news, gossip, and a look at Superman and other media. On Thursdays, we review the Superman comics following the Infinite Crisis in 2006, all the way up to the present, month-by-month, issue-by-issue. And don't forget the SFR Daily Planet, a mini-cast giving you the scoop on the Man of Steel as it happens. So visit supermanforever.com or iTunes and, of course, the Superman Podcast Network and begin the never-ending battle today. Superman Forever Radio. All Superman. All the time. invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. 
Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning. We're sitting on top of the story of the century here. It's official. As of 4-18-2011, two weeks later than initially planned, the SFR Daily Planet is live. And here is the mini uh, companion podcast to my Superman Forever radio podcast. Uh, what we will do is I'll provide you with the latest Superman news in audio form as it happens. And that's from movie news to comic book rumors and more. This has become the only daily podcast devoted to Superman. And you can check it out at supermanforever.com Monday through Friday. Smallville's Tom Welling will be appearing on Jimmy Kimmel Live on May 12, 2011, one day before the finale of his 10-year run as Clark Kent on Smallville. So remember to tune in or set your DVRs, or if you're still in, in the old days, your DVRs, to find Tom Welling on Jimmy Kimmel Live, which airs on ABC May 12, 2011, one day before the finale. And Brian Singer spoke with VoicesFromKrypton.com about Superman Returns, pretty much stating why the movie, in his opinion, and in the studio's opinion, failed. Singer said, and I quote, I know it's hard to blame the time, but there's a bit of expectation for a summer movie. I think that Superman Returns was a bit nostalgic and romantic, and I don't think it was what people were expecting, especially in the summer. Singer went on to say, What I had noticed was there weren't a lot of women lining up to see a comic book movie, but they were lining up to see Devil Wears Prada which may have had been something I wanted to address. Looking back, Singer says he would do the movie completely differently. He finishes out the quote by saying, If I was going to do another one, it would be a reboot. I would go back and redo the original. It would be much less romantic. Elsewhere, Robert Gordon, writer of Galaxy Quest, has written a script on spec for Bizarro Superman, which features the origin of the super doppelganger. The plot features a scientist accidentally blasting Superman with a replicator beam, splitting the Man of Steel off from the backwards Bizarro. After an epic battle with Bizarro, the dupe is left for dead until ten years later, when General Zod and Ursa search for him, resurrecting the duplicate. The script seems to be in line with the ending of Superman 2, with the Kryptonian duo's powers erased by the Molecule Chamber, and them looking to regain their strengths. There is, at this time, no indication that the film will be made, but Latino Review has a first look and then a review of the script on their website. And remember to visit supermanforever.com or the supermanpodcastnetwork.com Monday through Friday and as it happens over the weekend for all your news via the SFR Daily Planet and to rejoin us back here Sunday for a complete recap. And right after this promo, we're going to look at the Superman stories of Alan Moore. My name is Michael Bailey. And I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. 
From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 wait. I'm just not feeling this. I'm just wondering how there's a needle-scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number 1 in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world, and when these comics were published, and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air. Eventually. Because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. And before we start this look at the Superman works of Alan Moore, I do want to clarify this is an overview, and it's not intended to be a review. However, I will be doing a synopsis of the more Superman stories, so if you have not read them, be warned. Here be spoilers. And let's talk about Alan Moore. Alan Moore, he's responsible for some of the most profound and respected comic book stories in the medium. V for Vendetta, From Hell, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and Watchmen, as well as an influential run on Swamp Thing and Marvel Man, or Miracle Man, depending on which you prefer. He's an enigmatic, reclusive figure. He shuns the public spotlight, not to say he doesn't do interviews now and then, and he's extremely cordial when he does, but more or less he's very private and refuses to have any association with film adaptations of his works. Born in 1953, Alan was, he grew up in Northampton, England, and he began publishing his own poetry and essays and fanzines and eventually helped set up his own fanzine titled Embryo while working at a variety of monotonous jobs, following getting f- kicked out of grammar school for selling LSD. But feeling unsatisfied with his line of work, Moore decided instead to write and illustrate his own comic strips. Having been a huge reader from a young age, he actually came across not only the British comics, but American comics like Detective Comics and Flash and more. So using the pseudonym of Kurt Vile, Moore wrote a comic strip about a private detective known as Roscoe Moscow, which appeared in the weekly music magazine Sounds. And he also did a comic strip for his local newspaper. And he moved up in the world of comics to Marvel UK 2000 AD, where he caught the attention of DC editor Len Wayne. Wayne placed Moore on Swamp Thing, which he immediately retconned and began forming his own path with the character bringing a a host of unused DC magical characters and creating the character of John Constantine based on the singer Sting, not Keanu Reeves. Moore had a very positive critical response in the U.S., which he talks about on the British series Inside Out from 2008. I do have a voice clip here. 
I think the fact that I was bringing literary values to the writing of comics was probably the thing that startled everybody and which gained me much of my reputation. That I, yes, I was influenced by the comics that I'd read during my childhood and teenage years, but I was also influenced by the incredible number of grown-up authors that I'd read since then. And with his success on the more peripheral characters in the DC Universe, Moore was given a crack at telling a Superman tale in 1985, which is the first subject of discussion. For The Man Who Has Everything, it was printed in Superman Volume 1, Annual Number 11, which hit stands June 20th, 1985, a little under a year before Watchmen Number 1 would be released, which is relevant since this issue teamed Alan Moore with his Watchmen artist Dave Gibbons. The reason I mention the timing is that Watchmen would have been at some stage of production at this point, which totally sets up the story that we're about to go through very well. For the Man Who Has Everything features Wonder Woman, Batman, and Robin, which would be Jason Todd at this time, visiting the Fortress of Solitude to celebrate Superman's birthday. But when they arrive, they find the Man of Steel in a trance, thanks to the effects of a symbiotic alien plant called the Black Mercy, courtesy of Mongol. The Black Mercy allows the infected to see their greatest fantasy come to life in a dreamlike state. For Superman, that means a Krypton that never exploded and a life he never had. In this altered reality, Kal-El works for the Institute of Geology, and he's married to a woman named Lila, who was a former actress. He has a son named Van and a daughter named Orna. Now, Van-El would obviously become the name of a character in the world of Krypton uh, in 1987, done by a miniseries done by John Byrne. This Krypton, however, is torn by political extremism. They're fighting over such topics as Phantom's own prisoner rights. Now, the heated political landscape gets so harsh that Kara Zor-El, the same one that would have been Supergirl in the real world, gets brutally attacked. The political instability reaches a critical pitch as the outside world, Wonder Woman, Batman, and Robin desperately face Mongul. And as Wonder Woman battles valiantly, Batman and Robin struggle to get the Black Mercy off of Superman, unfortunately at the expense of Batman, who himself becomes infected. Superman is able to regain consciousness and proceeds to beat the ever-loving out of Mongul, who has overcome Wonder Woman at this point. And Robin, meanwhile, manages to get the Black Mercy from Batman, shows up in the midst of the heated Superman-Mongul battle to inflict the deadly parasite, well, not the deadly, pardon me, the parasite directly onto Mongul, who basically in his fantasy sees endless tyrannical rule. And the thing that stood out in this story is the cover date, 1985. This is pre-crisis Superman done in a very post-crisis style. To be accurate, the book hit stands the same month as Crisis on Infinite Earths number 6, but this tone was decidedly adult. To give you a context of how I first read the story, it was the summer of 1989 and I was stuck at a lake house for quite some time with only the greatest Superman stories ever told, uh, trade paperback to keep me entertained. I've told this story a few times, and this would put me at about 11 years old, and that means this story went mostly over my head at the time. Reading it as an adult, I can see Alan Moore ratchets the intensity up on, in the Krypton scenes. They're sometimes more engaging than the fight scenes that's, that are going on in the fortress. And the great thing about the layout is the Krypton scenes, what's happening inside kal mind, 
and they're separated from the battle in the Fortress of Solitude by a red border around the panel, so you're never really lost. Which is a tricky thing to do in a comic book, apparently. Now, there have been stories in which we saw the road not taken. What if Krypton hadn't exploded? Most notably in Superman's Other Life from Superman Volume 1, number 132, which appeared in the exact same collection that I first read for The Man Who Has Everything. But we hadn't seen it like this. Most of the Silver Age stories showed Krypton a little bit more cheerfully, a little bit more innocent. In this version, Jor-El is an extremist who believes in the ways of old Krypton, trapping people in the Phantom Zone and out of touch with his family. Yes, you can take the allegory of American government. I'm not going to. I'm not going to touch that because this is not the platform where that needs to happen. Kal-El, however, is a regular guy who's married to the beautiful former actress, but the House of El is split by the political stances of Jor-El and his late brother Zor-El. The crux of the story really comes when Superman wakes up from his trance and is armed with the memories of his alternate life. This wasn't just a dream that he was able to shake off. This mattered to him, and to some extent, it was real to him. And in that context, he was strangely content and happy and complete. Namor's Watchmen was so highly acclaimed, primarily due to his insights into the psyche of superheroes. And this issue stands as a perfect springboard to what would become the modern age of comics, the mandate for relevant real-world-based stories with pathos. It's almost as if this is a focus group to see if this type of writing would fly, and boy did it. Superman's internal longing for his home world was never told with this much precision or this much pathos. It was always kind of shrugged off in order to keep the tone of the story going forward. Here, Moore delivered a story that was at once hyper-violent, as Wonder Woman and Superman battle Mongul, but also insightful and quite heartbreaking at the same time. And we even get a glimpse into Batman's greatest fantasy. Now, this issue has been reprinted multiple times in the greatest Superman stories ever told, both the hardcover and the trade paperback. It was also printed in Across the Universe, the DC Universe Stories of Alan Moore trade paperback, and then the DC Universe, the Stories of Alan Moore trade paperback, slightly retitled. And Superman, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, the deluxe edition hardcover, and also the trade paperback of Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. And it was quite faithfully adapted into an episode of Justice League Unlimited. Now, Moore's Superman work would be a lot more uh, relevant to the continuity in the fact that it would effectively wrap up the Silver and Bronze Age Superman's journey. Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow would begin in Superman Volume 1, number 423, cover dated September 1986, but the issue would hit stands on June 12th of 1986, just one week after Watchmen number 1 hit the stands on June 5th. And it would be followed by Action Comics number 583, boasting the same cover date but hitting new stands on June 26th, 1986, two weeks to the day to the release of Man of Steel number 1 on July 10th, 1986. And more would be joined by legendary Superman artist Kurt Swan on the story, who would be inked by Kurt Schaffenberger in action and George Perez in Superman. Now, the story features Lois Lane in the future talking to a reporter about Superman. She recalls how Superman faced Bizarro, who kills himself with blue kryptonite following the destruction of Bizarro World. And then the Toy Man and the Prankster send a box of Superman action figures to the WGBS office, 
which shoot actual heat vision, burning Clark Kent's clothes off and revealing Superman's secret identity to the world. Then the other surprise comes, right in the same scene. Pete Ross's dead body. He was tortured to death to get Clark's secret identity. You feeling that the, the tone is changing here in terms of silver and bronze age? You, you, if you don't yet, you will. In the Arctic, Lex Luthor discovers robot Brainiac's remains, and Brainiac basically bonds with him to form a symbiotic relationship and takes control of his body. The Daily Planet, meanwhile, comes under attack by an army of Metallos, which Superman defeats, but with some unknown enemy clearly organizing strikes against Superman and his closest friends, he decides to vacate them to the Fortress of Solitude for their own protection. And once there, Crypto returns after years and years of roaming the stars, which everybody takes as an ominous sign. And as ominous as that is, the Legion of Superheroes then show up and present Superman with the trophy of his greatest hour, a gold statue of Superman holding a Phantom Zone projector. Brainiac, using Luthor's body, has managed to recruit the Kryptonite Man and the Legion of Supervillains who arrived from the 30th century. And so begins the assault on the Fortress of Solitude, and it is relentless, with casualties. Superman's superhero allies are kept at bay by a giant dome as Superman talks to Perry about Lana and Lois, and how he has basically been wasting their time, and probably ruined their lives because of the secrets and the fact that he's never able to truly be, be with either of them. Now, Lana overhears this conversation and Superman admitting that he loves Lois because Lana has taken a dip in the lake water that granted her superpowers, which Superman had in the fortress as a souvenir. And Jimmy joins Lana, drinking the Elastic Lad serum, and the two suit up for battle. And Lana and Jimmy attack Brainiac's group. Lex begs for Lana to kill him, which she does with a super slap, breaking his neck. Sadly, Lana's powers are removed by Cosmic King, and then she is killed by Lightning Lord. Jimmy, trying to shut off the dome's generator, sees this, rushes to attack, but is killed himself by Brainiac, now piloting Luthor's dead body. Kryptonite Man, meanwhile, breaches the fortress and is attacked by Crypto, who kills the Kryptonite Man, but at the expense of his own life as Kryptonite Poisoning overtakes the Dog of Steel. And when the Legion of Supervillains make it into the fortress, they find a Superman driven to the point of killing them because of the deaths of his friends. So they take off, escape to the 30th century, as Brainiac makes it to the fortress, but he's unable to do much more as Rigor Mortis has overtaken Luthor's body. And the Luthor-Brainiac combo falls lifeless, and Brainiac is rendered powerless. Now the danger appears over, but Superman can feel that there's some unknown element here, a loose end devising this whole plot. And he calls out Mr. Mixus Pitalik, who's ready to kill Superman as his time as a prankster has become boring after two millennia. Mixie reveals his horrific true form, which Superman knows he can't defeat as he is magically based, but Lois points to the statue the Legion gave Superman and the Phantom Zone projector, which Superman points at Mixus Pitalik. Just as the projector's beam hits the imp, he says his name backwards, he is literally ripped apart between the two dimensions. So Superman has taken a life. Now knowing he's broken his oath not to kill, Superman steps into the gold kryptonite chamber to lose all of his powers. And by the time the world's greatest heroes get through the dome, they find the dead bodies of Superman's friends and allies, and Lois sitting at the locked door of the gold chamber, 
but Superman was never found. It's assumed that he walked out into the Arctic and died. In the present, Lois finishes her, or the future, pardon me, Lois finishes her interview and bids the reporter goodbye with her husband, Jordan Elliott, and their son, Jonathan. And as the story wraps, Lois tells her husband that they should have some pizza, a bottle of wine, and then live happily ever after as baby Jonathan squeezes a piece of coal into a diamond. And Jordan closes the door on the Elliott household and gives a great Superman wink to the reader. And so ends an era. Admittedly, as I mentioned early on as we're talking about this, this is a dark, dark story for Superman to go out on, and it always brings a sickening feeling to my stomach to read it, and just makes my heart heavy for hours afterward. It's an extremely emotional story. Crypto's death always just tears me up. The idea that he returned because he knew what was about to happen and what he had to sacrifice. I've heard stories of dogs kind of running away at their time to pass on. And this is kind of what Crypto did here. Except he returned. Lana overhearing Clark admit that he loves Lois. And then the line that just kills me with her, he t- she tells Jimmy, nobody loved him like us. It's, it's like a sharp knife to the kidney. But I think the line that just brings the epic nature of this story to the forefront, it defines it for me, it belongs to Batman. And Batman, when looking over the aftermath of the fortress siege, describes the scene as like walking amongst the fragments of a legend. At this point, there had been nearly 50 years of Superman stories told on the comic page. We had seen Superman defend Metropolis from all sorts of evil plots. It stands to reason that the final tale of the Man of Steel would be dark. It would have casualties. As I mentioned, the book came out two weeks before the Man of Steel miniseries. Superman, with 423 touted as the final issue, would be retitled Adventures of Superman for the next 20 years, and a new Superman number one would debut. John Byrne would wipe the slate clean and start again, as Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns would change everything about the way we look at superheroes. Comics would become dark and gritty, new companies would rise and fall, and the industry would face near death by oversaturation. But at least at this turning point, which you can actually see the high watermark with this story, we would have somewhat a somewhat happy ending as Jordan Elliott, aka Superman, who would give one final wink to the to the reader, and jo- Jonathan Elliott showed the promise of another Superman to come. Of course, he's using an altered name of his Kryptonian father, Jor El, Jor Den Elliot, and naming a son after his Earth father, Elliot. Pardon me, Jonathan. He would literally close the door on an, a time in comics that we will never see again. Whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow is a must-read story. The intricacies of the characters in just two issues are just laid bare. And I don't think there's any major tropes in the Superman mythology that really went untouched. The The primary glut of his, pardon me, the primary group of his villains were either defeated or resolved. You had an appearance by the Legion. All of his supporting cast had a subplot. Even Perry White and Alice White, who had been on the outs in terms of their marriage, had a resolution. And of course, Jimmy and Lana's sacrifice, Crypto, it, it was a... Uh, it was an event. There's nothing. There's no other word for it. It was beyond an event. And as much as the Man of Steel era was itself, you know, a new definition of the hero, this was the last word on what had been 
Superman for 50, 30 to 50 years. Now, if you haven't read that, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow was reprinted in Superman, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, number one. DC Universe, The Stories of Alan Moore trade paperback. Superman, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, deluxe hardcover edition and trade paperback. And Alan Moore would eventually sever his ties to DC Comics amidst a fight over censorship and Watchmen royalties. He would do some work for Image in its 1963 miniseries and on Rob Liefeld's Superman-esque character Supreme, but he would ironically end up back at DC through an accidental purchase of uh, Jim Lee's now-defunct Wildstorm imprint when it was sold to DC Comics. Moore, who was creating his own imprint, America's Best Comics, was assured by Lee that he would not have to deal with DC directly and proceeded with ABC Comics, producing League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Tom Strong, Top Ten, and Promethea. However, DC edited one of the vintage-style ads that appeared in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and this one was aimed to poke fun at the competitor, the distinguished competition, the House of Ideas, Marvel Comics and continued to put their editorial noses in Alan Moore's affairs, which led him to leave mainstream comics altogether. Moore does continue the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series here and there with different volumes, and right now he's actually uh, working on something else. He features writers from his hometown of Northampton in Dodgem Logic, which is what Moore describes as the 21st century's first underground magazine. He still resides in Northampton with his wife, Melinda Gebby, with whom he's worked on several comics, most notably Lost Girls. And after this podcast promo, to cleanse our palates from all of this, we'll take a look at Metallo's animated premiere in Superman the Animated Series. Stay with me, and we'll be right back with you. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. And this week's episode of Superman the Animated Series is entitled The Way of All Flesh. It's written by Stan Berkowitz, directed by Kenji Hichizaki, starring Tim Daly as Superman Clark Kent, Dana Delaney as Lois Lane, Clancy Brown as Lex Luthor, Malcolm McDowell as John Corbin Metallo, and John Rubinow as Dr. Vale. The episode originally aired on September 28, 1996. At Stryker's Island, a guard named Ralph serves John Corbin a fancy meal. The last time we saw Corbin, he was battling Superman in the Lexoskeleton back in the last part of Last Son of Krypton. That would be part three. Now in prison, Corbin seems to be getting the royal treatment. Ralph wonders how Corbin rates the high-end meals, and Corbin says never to underestimate the value of a good friend. As Corbin begins to eat, he doubles over in pain, which apparently has been happening often. This time, however, Corbin falls to the floor in pain, and it takes and they take he is taken to see Dr. Emmett Vale who has bad news. Corbin is dying of a very rare disease. Vale suggests alternative treatment, which their mutual friend can accommodate. Meanwhile, by Hobbs Bay, Clark rides his bike, apparently too slowly for the others around him. Two missiles suddenly fly overhead, hitting Stryker's Island. 
and the prisoners begin to flood out of the broken walls. When Superman shows up to smack a third missile off course and gather a couple of crooks trying to escape as several more try to swim away only to be caught in a fishnet by the Man of Steel. Superman lifts a piece of the ridge off and patches up the, the prison wall hole. However, at the banks of the bay, Corbin rises adorned in scuba gear and relishes his freedom. You did it, Doc. Mmm, the smell of freedom. Never thought I'd see the day. Corbin is taken to Lex Luthor. He unveils mutual friend, who tells John that he is going to reward him for not implicating Lex in the Lexoskeleton affair. Luther explains that Corbin's brain will be transplanted into a robotic body made from metallo, a new form of metal, and it will be powered by kryptonite, which will be the source of John's life and the end of Superman's. Corbin is put under anesthesia, and his new medical meta, bleh, pardon me, metal skeleton is rolled in. We get a brief recap of Corbin's battle with Superman via TV news report on air at the Daily Planet, where Lois shows up with, and shows Clark the medical records on John Corbin. Well, one way or another, Corbin won't be free for long. How's that? Corbin's medical records. I have a friend at Strikers. A Roscoe's retrovirus? Uh-huh. 100% fatal. But the only place it's native to is some little island off South America. Kent, Corbin was a mercenary and a fugitive from at least five countries. That's a recipe for a frequent flyer, if I ever heard one. Following his transplant... Corbin feels great, and Luther watches as his strength is tested using a punching device. Hit that, please. Impressive. Wasn't even trying. His next punch demolishes the machine altogether. altogether. Metallo withstands small missiles fired at him, and Corbin tells Lex that he can't feel anything, which Lex says there are some adjustments to be made. And then John is sent out to kill Superman, lamenting that he no longer needs food or water or can taste them. Corbin catches Superman's attention by standing on the monorail tracks, stopping the train with his bare hands and causing a, mass, causing a massive train wreck, and then continuing to tear the train station apart until Big Blue shows up and the two battle. The fight is pretty evenly matched until Corbin opens the compartment in his chest, revealing the kryptonite, which we can assume is the same chunk we saw at the end the very tail end of A Little Piece of Home. Metallo begins wailing on a weakened Superman, throwing him several stories off the side of the highway flyover when Lois shows up to with her car to rescue him. Corbin closes the chest plate and tells Lois he's been thinking about her as he sat in prison, then lays a big, wet kiss on her, but finds that the result is not what he expected. <gasps> oh, I... I, I didn't feel anything. See if you feel this! Ow! As Corbin is, Corbin is distracted, Superman climbs into Lois's car, rams Metallo with it, knocking him to the top of a truck passing below, and allowing an escape for the Man of Steel. Metallo, meanwhile, barges into the labs where he was created, demanding that he be allowed to feel again. But the doctor explains that he will never feel pleasure or pain. Corbin demands another body, but is angered to find that the change is permanent. He walks into a bathroom and begins to rip parts of his skin away, having a nervous break and deeming himself to be Metallo in name. Back at Strikers, Lois and Clark find out that Dr. Vale has resigned after falling into some money. And while sorting through some vials, Lois casts some doubt on Superman's ability to stop Metallo. 
Gotta be a link to Corbin somewhere. And then what? It's not going to stop his next rampage. I don't care how tough he is, he's got to have a weakness, Lois. <sighs> you talk as if it's our job to stop him, Kent. After what I saw, I don't even think it's Superman's. In the office, they find biohazard materials in a jar of the virus, as well as LexCorp parking validations. Luthor, speaking of, is sitting on his fully automated yacht enjoying caviar when Metallo shows up, driven insane by his inability to feel. You don't know how this feels! It's driving me crazy! Luthor assures Metallo that he is working on the adjustments and drives the yacht towards a secret lab to get Metallo out of sight. While out at sea, Superman boards the yacht, threatens Luthor, and Metallo attacks Superman. So round two progresses pretty much as expected, with Corbin being slammed by an escape boat, showing Superman that he can focus the kryptonite into beams. The fight goes under the decks where Metallo beats Superman until the Man of Steel reveals that Dr. Vale was putting the virus into Corbin's food. Metallo realizes that Luthor was serving his own end, tricking John into becoming Metallo so he would destroy Superman. Suddenly, Corbin's attention is focused elsewhere. Corbin attempts to pour the vial of the virus into Luthor's mouth, while Superman recovers enough to ignite some fuel barrels below deck, causing a great explosion on the yacht, which throws Luthor and Metallo overboard into the sea. Metallo, too heavy to swim, sinks to the depth of the water as Superman flies from the fiery yacht and rescues Luthor just before a shark can take a bite out of him. Superman drops Luthor at the dock, where the smug Baldwin slithers out of trouble again. Or does he? You'll excuse me if I don't see you home. You'll never pin this on me. The virus is destroyed and Corbin's lost at sea. And even if you found him, there'd still be that kryptonite to worry about. I don't think I'm the one who should be worrying. Superman flies off, leaving Luthor to look out onto the sea where the deep below the surface, on the ocean floor, a figure walks lit by the green glow of kryptonite in his chest. Now this was the episode that made me fall completely in love with Superman the Animated Series. Its use of the previously established John Corbin as well as the kryptonite from A Little Piece of Home suddenly made me, made me realize, hey, this show has a sense of continuity on its own. And as we progress further, you'll see how much that continuity, continuity plays into the show. I love Malcolm McDowell's Corbin. His casting proves that this show really had top-notch talent working on it. He and Clancy Brown play off of each other magically. And the design of John Corbin segued perfectly into his appearance as Metallo, since he already had a somewhat skull-like appearance to begin with. Now, following the lackluster Parasite appearance last week, this episode was a breath of fresh air and exactly what the Doctor needed. And speaking of doctors, I think it's exemplary that Dr. Vale appeared as part of the conspiracy to, to create Metallo. As he was an important part of the Metallo origin in the burn era of the comics where a lot of this show was taken from. The motivation for the Metallo-Superman throwdown was set up perfectly in the pilot, and it played out like a well-played symphony here. The animation flowed smoothly, and the fight scenes were extremely detailed, with a rich setting... And Superman had a lot of expression to his face, and the side characters, such as the escaping prisoners at Strikers, were detailed as well. This episode is going on my top five Superman the Animated Series episodes of all time, and it gets five S-Shields out of five, which I believe is the first episode to receive that. 
And after this, we're gonna I'm gonna play one more promo, and we'll come back and kind of bring this ship into harbor for this week. Look up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man of steel and more superman homepage.com and that wraps us up for the week but of course i will be back this thursday for the review episode i will not however be back next sunday don't worry this isn't the end of the show by any stretch i'm here for the long haul but every time there's a fifth sunday in a month i do take a break in order to charge my batteries and let the show get a couple of episodes ahead especially as we go into the late spring, early summer, where it's going to be very busy for the show. This time, there is another reason, which will be revealed at a later date. It's a secret reason. So, I will not have a new episode next Sunday, May 1st, or next Thursday, May 5th. I will return Sunday, May 8th, as usual, and then Thursday, May 12th. And the SFR Daily Planet will continue as usual, Monday through Friday, and as the news breaks over the weekend. But don't forget that I will be back this Thursday to do the review episode, and that includes Action Comics number 850. It's going to be a big episode. There's going to be a lot to go over. So do remember to come back. And thank you for listening to Superman Forever Radio, production of supermanforever.com. As always, you can find the show and leave a review on iTunes or visit supermanforever.com. And, of course, the show is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, where you can find other great Superman podcasts covering all eras of The Man of Steel at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Drop the show an email at mail at supermanforever.com or follow the show on Twitter. The username is at superman, the number four, ever. Superman forever. And you, be, you can become a fan of the show on Facebook. Simply search for supermanforever.com and press the like button. Leave a voicemail at the call-in line, which is 703-95-SUPER. That's 703-957-8737. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademarks of DC Comics, a Warner Brothers Entertainment Company. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and no profit is made from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and until next episode, keep on fighting the never-ending battle. <laughs>